0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the April 14th edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Fols with Floyd, Karen and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. A new WCAB panel decision clarifies the method a QME must use when evaluating a psychiatric injury. Here's what happened in the case of Fujimoto versus Caliber Collision Centers and Hartford Accident and Indemnity Company. Mr. Fujimoto claimed that he suffered a continuous trauma psychiatric injury while employed by Caliber Collision Centers. The parties agreed to use Myron Nathan, MD, as the AME. Dr. Nathan said work-related stress caused 90% of Fujimoto's psychological injury. But the work comp judge asked the AME for a more definitive report. That would specify the percentage of causation for each separate claimed event of stress rather than lumping them all together in the 90% causation estimate. Specifically, the work comp judge instructed Dr. Nathan to describe in detail all the workplace and all the non-industrial related events that combined caused the applicant's psychological injury. Then Dr. Nathan was to assign a percentage of causation separately to each individual work-related and non-industrial event that, when combined, equal 100% of the causation of the psychological injury. Dr. Nathan was specifically instructed not to combine percentages as to the multiple factors. The work comp judge said he would be the one to decide which of these events actually happened or not, and whether those events were good faith personnel actions. Based upon this instruction the work comp judge gave, he would determine if the actual events of employment, if added together, would be more than 50% or the predominant cause of the applicant's psychological injury. The instruction provided the format for the AME to list and number each industrial and non-industrial event and to assign a separate percentage of causation to each numbered event. In response to these instructions, Dr. Nathan provided a list of 13 separately listed stressful events and the percentage of causation of each event separately. After reviewing the evidence and the 13 item list, the work comp judge found that only one item on the list of 13 was an actual event of employment and this one item caused only 4% of the psychiatric injury according to the percentage of causation assigned to that one item on the list by Dr. Nathan. Thus, the work comp judge found that the applicant did not sustain industrial injury to his psychological system. The applicant petitioned for reconsideration, and it was denied, and the panel adopted the reasoning of the work comp judge. A multi-level analysis is required to establish compensability for claims of injury based upon personnel actions in accordance with the Unbank 2001 decision in Rolda versus Pitney Bowes. The analysis must first determine whether the alleged psychological injury involves actual events of employment, which is a factual and legal determination to be made by the work comp judge. If so, the analysis must then determine whether such actual events were the predominant cause accounting for 51% or more of the psychological injury, a determination which requires medical evidence. Then the analysis must determine whether any of the actual employment events were personnel actions that were lawful, non-discriminatory, and in good faith, a factual legal determination, again made by the work comp judge. And finally, the analysis has to determine whether the lawful non-discriminatory good faith personnel action were a substantial cause, accounting for at least 35 to 40 percent of the psychological injury, again a determination which requires medical evidence. Having reviewed all of Dr. Nathan's reports and considering the applicant's lack of credibility in his testimony, the work comp judge could not conclude that any of the applicant's claimed employer actions except for the one event on the list were actual events of employment. That one event only caused 4% of his psychological injury, which was below the 51% threshold required for a finding of industrial injury. And now our fraud report. A former Bell Gardens police officer pleaded no contest in a case alleging he committed workers' compensation fraud. 31-year-old John Kovacs was convicted of one felony count of workers' compensation insurance fraud. Kovacs filed a false workers' compensation claim for a knee injury he alleged occurred on the job. However, an internal investigation by his employer revealed that Kovacs suffered the injury during off-duty hours at a physical agility test for the Huntington Beach Police Department. The Superior Court judge ordered Kovacs was to complete 400 hours of community service and pay a $4,000 fine to the state workers' compensation fund. The defendant is scheduled to be sentenced on October 2, 2014. The case was investigated by the Bell Gardens Police Department and the District Attorney's Bureau of Investigation. A San Francisco Municipal Transportation Agency bus driver was charged with lying about being injured in a 2012 robbery, an attack that authorities said never happened. 61-year-old Velma Louise Jones of Vallejo told San Francisco police she was robbed while working a shift as a bus driver back in 2012. She filed a workers' compensation claim, saying she suffered head injuries. But prosecutors said surveillance video from her bus contradicted her story. While three books of transfer tickets were stolen that day, Jones was allegedly taking a break away from the bus during the theft. The San Francisco District Attorney's Office said it began investigating the case after being contacted by the insurance company dealing with the workers' compensation claim. Jones was charged with four felonies, workers' compensation fraud, filing a fraudulent insurance claim, submitting documents in support of a fraudulent insurance claim, and making false statements in connection with an insurance claim. The district attorney described Jones as a city employee who attempted to take a paid vacation from work at the expense of San Francisco taxpayers. But Daniel Siegel, her attorney, said the case was just a misunderstanding. Although Jones was not on the bus at the time of the attack, he said she was outside it and the man who stole her transfers had shoved her out of the way, knocking her head against the bus. She withdrew her claim when she decided it wasn't that big of a deal. If convicted, she faces a maximum of eight years in state prison or county jail. She is now on paid leave of absence pending the outcome of her criminal case. 33-year-old Chip Kyle Bolton, formerly of Salinas, has been convicted by a jury of two counts of fraudulent statements in order to obtain workers' compensation benefits, one count of insurance fraud, one count of attempted perjury, one count of perjury, one count of welfare fraud, and one count of grand theft. The conviction was based upon surveillance footage of Mr. Bolton taken at a YMCA when he was exercising and playing sports after testifying in his deposition that he was not able to perform these activities. The amount of restitution for the workers' compensation fraud was approximately $60,000 and for the welfare fraud approximately $19,000. Bolton was remanded into custody and will be sentenced on May 2nd. Bolton's maximum sentence is 9 years and 10 months, and fines for workers' compensation fraud can be greater than $150,000 or double the amount of the fraud. Additionally, in insurance fraud cases, state law provides restitution be ordered and can include expenses such as attorney fees and the costs of the investigation. And in regulatory news, on April 2, 2014, the Workers' Compensation Appeals Board issued an unbonked decision in Navarro v. City of Montebello, which invalidated part of QME Regulation 35.5e. In that case, Ishmael Navarro filed an application and claim form in 2009 alleging a cumulative injury to his back and ear. He was evaluated in the CT case by panel QME doctor Yogamartum. Then in twenty ten applicant filed new applications and claim forms, alleging two specific injuries to his back, lower extremities, and legs. In twenty twelve, the defendant petitioned to compel an evaluation of applicants two new claims of injury by the original panel QME doctor Yogamartum. The work comp judge denied the petition and found that applicant was entitled to a new panel QME in his new specific injury cases and that QME rule 35.5E that seems to require an applicant return to the original QME did not apply. The WCAB agreed on reconsideration using a slightly different rationale and ruled that for subsequently filed claims, an applicant need not return to an original PQME. Now, pursuant to this WCAB's ruling in the Navarro case, the DWC Medical Unit will now issue new QME panels for claims made after an evaluation has taken place. Initial QME panel requests must be submitted using QME Form 106 for represented cases or QME Form 105 for unrepresented cases. To avoid unnecessary rejection of appropriate requests in cases in which additional panels are required in different specialties, parties and attorneys are reminded to use QME Form 31.7. The DWC has posted a first 15-day notice of modification to the proposed hospital outpatient departments and ambulatory surgical centers fee schedule regulations. Members of the public are invited to present written comments regarding the proposed modifications. The proposed modifications include updating the definitions of emergency room visit and surgical procedures to conform to Medicare and HCPCS coding changes. Also providing a base facility fee formula to give additional clarification regarding the payment methodology for other services that are determined solely on the non-facility practice expense relative value units. Finally, the proposed regulations clarify that the alternative payment methodology will be inapplicable for dates of service on or after the effective date of the proposed regulation. The notice and text of the regulations can be found on the proposed regulations page of the DWC website. The Division of Workers' Compensation has also posted orders adjusting the official medical fee schedule to conform to changes in the Medicare payment system as required by the Labor Code. The Durable Medical Equipment Prosthetics, Orthotics, and Supplies update includes all changes identified in the Center for Medicare and Medicare Services Change Request Number 8645. This order adopts the first Medicare Quarterly DME POS update for calendar year 2014. The orders adopting the OMFS adjustments are effective for services rendered on or after April 1, 2014 and can be found on the DWC website. And in medical news, U.S. regulators just approved a portable device to treat painkiller overdoses that people without medical training can use in emergency situations. This device will help combat the rise of deaths from the abuse of opioids, including heroin. The FDA said making the cell phone-sized device with the recovery drug Naloxone available for wider use could help save lives as opioid drug overdoses increase. The approval means emergency responders or even family members could have an easy-to-use treatment in cases of suspected overdose of opioids, which include pain drugs like oxycodone, morphine, codeine, and hydrocodone, as well as heroin. More than 16,000 people die each year from prescription opioid overdose in the United States. Opioid overdoses are mostly tied to those addicted to painkillers and heroin, but they can also happen accidentally in patients using the prescription medicines legitimately to treat pain. The handheld device is called Evzio and automatically delivers a set dose of Naloxone, a drug ingredient already approved to treat overdose patients that works by quickly restoring breathing. Naloxone is now typically given through a nasal spray or a syringe that must be injected under the skin or into the muscle and has been limited mostly to medical professionals at hospitals and emergency rooms as well as a growing number of police officers and other emergency responders. The new device, approved by the FDA, is small enough to be carried in a pocket. But relatives and caregivers would still need training and practice on how to use the device and several doses may be needed to revive someone. Health experts and other advocates trying to combat the effects of drug addiction welcomed the device's approval and some even suggested doctors prescribe it along with initial opioid painkiller prescriptions. But Some also worried the injector could cause some people to dismiss the risks of opioid use because an antidote would be easier to access. FDA and other federal drug officials said Evzio was not a substitute for medical care and that it was essential that people who overdose still get quick medical attention. It was not immediately clear how much the injector would cost or whether health insurance companies would cover the cost. The device will require a prescription and will be available at pharmacies this summer. The manufacturer has not yet set a price. The Drug Policy Alliance Advocacy Group expressed concern about costs and said people should use whichever form of naloxone is most convenient and affordable for them. A growing number of municipalities have stocked other naloxone treatments and have begun training firefighters, police officers, and other emergency medical personnel on how to deliver the antidote. The New York Attorney General said the state would equip every law enforcement officer in the state with naloxone to help find, fight a surge in heroin, a surge in heroin overdoses. The effort would be funded with $5 million recovered from drug traffickers. Police in Quincy, Massachusetts began requiring officers to carry naloxone in 2010. Since that time, the police department has used the drug 221 times and reversed overdoses in 95% of those cases. Last week, the governor of Massachusetts declared a public health emergency stemming from the abuse of opioids and said his state would also make Naloxone more widely available. And in other news, Crawford & Company today announced that it has appeared on this year's Information Week Elite 100 list of the top business technology innovators in the United States. Crawford is being recognized by Information Week for a suite of innovative online and mobile tools that accelerate claims management. The company has been honored for the sixth consecutive year. The tools are accessed globally via an online portal called Crawford Desktop. Crawford Desktop uses mobile device geolocation to pinpoint the closest, most qualified adjuster for a given claim site and claim type. The assignment is then electronically delivered to a qualified adjuster based on location, availability, and performance scorecard. The adjuster accepts the assignment, travels to the site, and documents each step of the claims management process, including uploading video, images, and voice notes to the Crawford desktop portal from a mobile device. The portal may be accessed from a variety of mobile devices with the adjuster's data transferring to Crawford's claim management system. Another unique feature of the Crawford desktop is the integration of social media into the claims management process. This provides collaboration with clients and Crawford employees, allowing adjusters in the field to solve problems interactively and in real time. This is Information Week's 26th year identifying and honoring the nation's most innovative users of innovation of information technology. For 2014, this assessment was narrowed to a more elite 100 organizations. Information Week's elite 100 research tracks the technology-based investments, strategies, and results of some of the best known organizations in the country. Additional details on the Information Week Elite 100 can be found online at the Information Week website. And one final word. The California workers' compensation system is often the scapegoat for the statewide dismal business climate. This perception fuels the routine battle cry for more workers' compensation reform. So let's look at the California report card for the first quarter of 2014 and see how workers' compensation stacks up with other state financial and political issues. Is workers' compensation cost the singular issue of concern to state citizens? Well, as of April 1, 2014, California is noteworthy because it has the third highest workers' compensation costs, but... The most progressive personal income tax schedule, the highest state personal income and capital gains tax rate, and the highest state only sales tax rate, the fourth highest state and local tax burden in the country, the fourth highest unemployment rate in the nation, the highest poverty rate in the nation, the third highest educational employee pay in the nation with the fourth lowest student test scores in the nation. The most restrictive regulatory burden. The California Teachers Union has been the single largest contributor to political campaigns in California over the past decade, double that of the next largest contributor, also a state government employees union. The seventh highest share of public employee unionization. The highest paid public employees and the fourth worst highways in the country. There's a lot of work to improve the problems shown on this report card in order to improve the business climate and the state economy as a whole. Certainly, there are more problems other than just workers' compensation costs. This is a very painful report card to digest in 2014 as the rest of the country recovers from the Great Recession. A singular focus on workers' compensation reform is not the answer. And with that, that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, for past editions of our news, and for much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and our special reports using your iPhone, iPad, iPod, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Scarron and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. And please drop by again next week for more news.